And uh, good morning to everyone. Good morning to everyone seated here and those who are watching online as well. Um, it's good to see you all. Uh, I think the crowd is coming back to being what it was slowly. And it's good to see that from here, especially. Um, so praise be to God that uh, we all could gather here together this morning and worship the Lord and be and we were reminded of several truths from scripture, especially in regards to our redemption. You know, uh, whenever you're given an opportunity by the Lord to speak anywhere, not just here, and you take the passage and you start studying and preparing the sermon, and by the time you're up to speak, you feel very unworthy. But there are some topics that make you feel most unworthy. And this is one of them. And so today we're going to look at the topic of the deity of Christ. So I want you all to give me your undivided attention, please, right from the beginning to the end, because this is one of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. And let's all sit together this morning in an attitude of worship, even through the sermon. Who is Jesus? This was a common question in the context in which Jesus lived and ministered in the first century. After more than 20 centuries, it still remains the most discussed question. Today, a significant segment of the world divides history into BC and AD in relation to his birth. And roughly 31% of the world's population claims to believe in him or follow him in some sense or the other. Now, when you have this kind of a widespread influence on, on humanity, you're bound to have many opinions about yourself. That is inevitable. And some of these opinions about Jesus are supported by sound historical and theological uh, claims. But the fact of the matter is, there are other things and opinions about Jesus that are purely figments of people's imaginations. And one thing is for sure, not all ideas about Jesus are right. Not all ideas about Jesus are right. So this morning, as part of our study through the whole counsel of God, we'll be looking at who Jesus is, especially in relation to his deity, the deity of Christ. In a culture like ours, where people inevitably have different concepts of God, it is difficult often to have the right concept of what God is. To compound the problem, we have numerous God-men who dot the landscape with their reckless claims that they've attained the God status. And there are also others who announce boldly that anybody in our culture can become a God. Probably all of this, to some degree or the other, has influenced our understanding of the claims of Jesus and the claims of the New Testament writers about Jesus. So when Jesus claimed to be God, what did he mean by that? When the New Testament writers wrote about Jesus, that he is God in the flesh, what did they mean by that? How are we to understand the declarations of Jesus about himself? Now, to appreciate the claims of Jesus, we need to take a fresh look at the Jewish concept of God around the time of the New Testament. The Jewish concept of God around the time of the New Testament. Let's just call it the Second Temple Period. 
just loosely, I'm going to call it the second temple period or the intertestamental period. What do the Jews believe about God and who God is during the decades leading up to the time of Jesus? It's important for us to understand this because the claims of Jesus and the claims of the New Testament writers about Jesus were all made in this context. They were all made in this particular setting. Now, the Jews in the intertestamental period were self-consciously monotheistic. They were self-consciously monotheistic. Monotheism is belief in one God, belief in one God. Now, in the midst of a pluralistic religious environment, they saw their worship of and obedience to Yahweh as something that defined their religious identity. They saw their worship of and obedience to Yahweh as something that defined their religious identity. So twice daily, every pious Jew in the intertestamental period, twice daily, morning and evening, just to affirm their monotheism, they would recite two passages from scripture from memory. Number one is a Shema that comes from Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God and the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then they would recite the Decalogue, as they called it, or the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any carved image or likeness of anything that's in the heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. They would recite it twice just to affirm their belief in monotheism, the one true God, Yahweh. And both these passages in that period of time were clearly understood to be a uniqueness of Yahweh. He's different. He's unique. Now, there were two identifying features of the God of Israel, that is Yahweh, in his relationship to Israel and in his relationship to the entire universe. Now listen to this very carefully, please. There were two identifying features of Yahweh, the God of Israel. The first one was in relation to the nation of Israel. The second one was in relation to the entire universe. The first one, let me just briefly speak about this. It's here. In relation to the nation of Israel, God revealed himself by his name, covenantal name called Yahweh. And it, in addition to revealing himself by this covenantal name, God's identity is known to Israel by remembering his acts and history. He is the one who redeemed us from the land of slavery and bondage. By his outstretched arm, by his mighty arm, he brought us out. Several acts like that in history. And also, he revealed himself and his character to the nation of Israel. But for our understanding this morning about the uniqueness of Yahweh and what the Israelites thought about in the first century period or in the second temple period, I want to talk a little bit about God's relationship uh, to the entire universe, the relationship of Yahweh to the whole universe and how the Jews understood it at that time. Now, the reason for this is when you look at the literature that was written in the intertestamental period, whenever the Jews wanted to talk about the identity of Yahweh and the uniqueness of Yahweh, they would always talk about his relationship to the universe, how he related to the whole of reality. And that's how they would talk about the uniqueness of Yahweh and the identity of his uniqueness to the pagans and to the Gentiles around them. 
So if you ask the question of a second temple Jew, what is so unique about Yahweh? What distinguishes Yahweh from all the other beings that are worshipped as gods by the Gentiles? Always and inevitably, any second temple Jew would come and say this, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, the only true God, the only true God is the sole creator of the universe, and he's the sole ruler of the universe. He's the sole creator of the universe. He's the sole ruler of the universe. And since he's the sole creator of the universe and the sole ruler of the universe, he alone is worthy of worship. No other being is. He alone is worthy of worship. No other being is. Now, God alone, Yahweh alone created all things. Everything else is part of his creation. Nothing participates in his being, including the beings that are worshipped as gods by the Gentiles. It is Yahweh who created them all. And God alone rules supreme over everything. All other things, including the beings worshipped as gods by the Gentiles, are subject to him, in subjection to him. They don't participate in his rule. They only serve. And because, like I said, he is a sole creator of the entire universe and the sole ruler of the entire universe, he alone is worthy of worship. Now, listen to me very carefully, please. But in his sovereignty over the universe and history, however, God employs myriads of angels, human emperors, and a vast number of servants to do his will, to be sure. But all of these, including the highest of angels, are seen as servants whose role is to simply carry out his will in total obedience to him. They do not share in his rule. They only serve while God sits on his throne, the angels, even the highest of angels and the greatest of angels, stand in his presence in the posture of servants, ready to take his will and to do his will. That's the kind of understanding that the Jews had about God in the Second Temple Judaism. Now, when you look at the Second Temple Jewish literature, the supremacy of God is frequently depicted in the powerful imagery of height. In the powerful imagery of height, Yahweh sits on his great throne, very high above the universe, supremely high above the universe. And from there, he rules the whole cosmos. He is situated on a throne in the heaven of heavens, exalted high over the many heavenly realms. And even the most exalted angels, the highest of angels, cannot approach this height, this lofty place in which Yahweh is seated. Okay, so the highest gods, they sit on top, the Olympian deities, but the lower gods, heroes, semi-divine beings, they also deserve appropriate degree of worship because for them, worship is a matter of degree because divinity is a matter of degree. On the other hand, on the other hand, if you look at the Jewish scheme of things, Yahweh does not sit at the top of a hierarchy. He doesn't sit at the top of a hierarchy. He has no equal nor peer. And worship of Yahweh was a recognition of his unique incomparability. It was a response to Yahweh's self-revelation as a sole creator and the sole ruler of all things. Therefore, it is inappropriate to worship other beings than Yahweh because they were created by him and they do not participate in his identity. They were created by him. They do not participate in his identity as a sole ruler of all things and the sole creator of all things. Let me just summarize what we learned so far 
about the intertestamental period and about the Jewish concept of God in the intertestamental period. Great divide between Yahweh and his creation, that is everything else in the universe. He is unique and is in a class by himself. As a creator and ruler of all things, he alone deserves worship. In fact, for the Jew, it is blasphemous to think that anything from here, anything that is part of creation, could ever participate in his being. It is blasphemous for Jew to even think that. Because the moment you say that something from here could participate in his being, you are saying that being or that person is on a par with Yahweh and is worthy of worship as Yahweh. Now into a setting like this, into an understanding like this, where the Jews practiced strict monotheism, comes Jesus of Nazareth with his claims. Jesus comes into the setting with his claims about himself. Now in looking at the biblical evidence for the deity of Christ, we begin with the self-consciousness of Jesus. I want to begin with the self-consciousness of Jesus. What did Jesus think about himself? What did Jesus believe about himself? Did he think of himself as the highest of all created things, making himself equal with Yahweh? Did he, did he think of himself as the highest of all created things? Or did he think of himself as God in the flesh, making himself equal with Yahweh? So let's look at some of the claims that Jesus made so that we can get an understanding of the self-consciousness of Jesus. What did Jesus think or believe about himself? The first thing, he called the angels his angels and the kingdom his kingdom. He called the angels his angels and the kingdom his kingdom. Look at Matthew chapter 13 verse 4. Uh, don't get distracted. Look at the verse here please. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Now we just saw that Yahweh is the sole creator of all things and he's the sole ruler of all things which means angels are created beings and Yahweh is the one who created them. And so the angels belong to God. And here, Jesus is making claims that they are his angels. The angels belong to him. Now the kingdom belongs to God as well, isn't it? Why? Because if you look at the New Testament, especially in the proclamation that he made. The second claim is his claim to forgive sins. His claim to forgive sins. Now this is given to us in the Synoptic Gospels. And I want to just uh, mention for us the story that is given to us in Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 where he claimed to forgive sins. Now we have the story there of the paralytic. You know what happens there and Jesus makes a statement, son your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. I don't have time to go into the story and to explain the entire thing. It takes some time, but Jesus is making a claim there to forgive sins, a prerogative that belongs to God alone. A prerogative that belongs to God alone. Now, you might say, Raymond, in the Old Testament, didn't the prophets forgive sins of people? Let me mention to you one incident. If you look at 2 Samuel 12, you know, there is the incident of Nathan approaching David, King David, after David had murdered Uriah and committed adultery with Bathsheba. And God sent Nathan the prophet to talk to David and 
after David asks for forgiveness and all of that, this is the message that Nathan gives to David. The Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord has taken away your sin. Yes, it is the prophet who is pronouncing the forgiveness, but he is only acting as a mediator of the forgiveness whose source is God. God is the one who gave forgiveness to David. And the prophet is just merely mediating the forgiveness that God gave David. On the other hand here, Jesus in contrast is making a more direct claim talking about his own authority. He claims to be forgiving sins. The second claim that is. Very quickly we'll move to the third claim. He spoke of judging the world. He spoke of judging the world. In the old way is the one who said glorious throne at the end of history and he's the one who judges the whole world in his righteousness in his justice and at that time the Old Testament says justice will not just be done but justice will be seen to be done Jesus here in Matthew 25 makes a statement when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne itself the team of things. He was throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. In other words, Jesus made himself the central figure on the day of judgment. He made himself the central figure on the judgment day. And he says, he holds in his hands the eternal destiny of the nations. He holds in his hands the eternal destiny of the nations. What do you think Jesus believed about himself? An angel? The highest of angels? Now mind you, in the Jewish scheme of things, even the highest of angels are in the created order. A part of the universe. They don't participate in the being of Yahweh. They don't participate in the identity of Yahweh. Fourth one, he claimed authority over the Sabbath. Now, I want to spend a little time on this because this is very, very important. He claimed authority over the Sabbath. It is given to us in all the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but I'm going to follow Matthew's story here. Matthew chapter 12. Now, here is a small insight into interpreting the gospels. Listen, please. When the gospel writers say that Jesus performed a miracle, take note. But when the gospel writers say that Jesus performed the miracle or said something on the Sabbath, sit up and take note. Why? Because it has got something to do with his identity always. Invariably, when Jesus does something on the Sabbath, performs a miracle on the Sabbath, or speaks something about himself on the Sabbath, it is in regard to his identity. Now, that's what's happening here. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, we have the story of Jesus, along with his disciples, walking through grain fields. And the disciples were hungry. What did they do? They took ears of corn and they tossed them into their mouth. Anything wrong? Nothing would have been wrong, but in the Jewish context, it was a Sabbath. And the theologians were there, the Pharisees were there, and the religious leaders, they come and say, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus, in his response, 
to the Pharisees, to the theologians of that day, the religious teachers, he gives three responses from the Old Testament. Now, listen to me very carefully, please. The first one, he goes to the story of David. David, when he was running away from Saul at Nob, he goes and he eats of the showbread that the, that the high priest gives him there. And David was not struck down for it. He gives that first example. I'm not getting into the details of it. We don't have time. I'll just mention the story. Number two, he talks about the temple priests who serve in the temple all the time. Even on the Sabbath, they're doing work on the Sabbath in the temple for the upkeep of the temple. They're not struck down. And then the third thing, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6. 6, and he says this, the Sabbath was given for God's compassionate purposes. But you have made that into harsh rules. You have made that into harsh rules. Now, if Jesus had stopped right here, three things from the Old Testament, we would have thought that Jesus is a good Jewish rabbi who's understanding the intent and the spirit of what the Old Testament was given for. Why? Because this is what we call as the halakha, which is the, which is the laws for the daily living in the Jewish society. All rabbis used to debate it all the time. They would look at some Old Testament passages and they would draw inferences and uh, life lessons for the Jewish society. And Jesus was, as a good rabbi, he was doing that. But Jesus doesn't stop here. He does something that no Jewish rabbi would have ever dreamed of doing. Look at verse 8. He says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Oh my. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Brothers and sisters, this is no ordinary claim. This is no ordinary claim. This is a claim to have divine authority to adjudicate what is right and what is wrong on the Sabbath. What is right and what is wrong on the Sabbath? If you go back to the Old Testament, Exodus 20, it is Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, who instituted the Sabbath. And he's the Lord of the Sabbath. In fact, Sabbath was a distinctive feature for the Jewish society. Uh, being faithful to the Sabbath meant covenantal faithfulness in the Jewish scheme of things. That's what separated the nation of Israel from the rest of the nations around the world. Why? Because it was the sign of the old covenant. Sabbath was a sign of the old covenant. And being faithful to the Sabbath, following the Sabbath, meant covenantal faithfulness. And God is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus here is claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this, I am the Lord of divine time and holy calendar. I am the one who gave you the divine time and the holy calendar. He has authority over divine time and holy calendar. What should Jesus believe about himself? What should Jesus have to think about himself to make a claim as audacious as this? That he has authority over holy time and divine calendar. The next one, he claimed to have a unique relationship with the father. He claimed to have a unique relationship with the Father. Jesus claimed a relationship of intimacy with the Father that no other person has, no other being can expect to have. For example, in John chapter uh, 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. I'm sorry. I think, uh, yeah, here it is. I and the Father are one. And then in John 14, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But I want to read just one verse for us that comes from Matthew 11, verse 27. 
All things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and they to whom he chooses to reveal him. In other words, there exists between God the Father and Jesus a unique reciprocal relationship, and nobody else can expect to have such a relationship. And no one knew the one but the other. By claiming this intimacy with God, he was making himself equal with God. By claiming, he was making himself equal with God. Quickly, number six, he claimed pre existence. He claimed pre existence. He claimed to exist before he was born in Bethlehem as a baby. We just saw Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are least among the clans of Judah, that uh, the prophecy from Micah 5 2. He was born in Bethlehem, but he claimed to have existed even before, before he was born in Bethlehem as a baby. Uh, look at John 5 85. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, sorry, John 8 58. Uh, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. John 17 verse 5 is a very interesting verse. He says, this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let me just share a little bit of a story because often when you look at some of the verses uh, there are some things from your life that come into your mind, and I, I don't have this as part of my manuscript, but just came to my mind. I just wanted to uh, let my mind wander a little bit. In the year 2001, I joined engineering, and you know, because of ragging all of us, the first years would huddle together in one room, right? It's, it's a common thing. So I went to my friend's room, uh, who would later on become friend for life. Uh, he is now one of the elders in, uh, in Toronto, in a church in Toronto. I went to his room and on his bed was Philip Yancey's book. It was called The Jesus I Never Knew. I sat there in the bed, bored, and I just started flipping through the pages and reading it. And I came to this particular verse that Yancey was describing. He writes John 17, 5, and he says, This sentence or statement by Jesus sounds like an old man reminiscing, right? He says, nay. It's like an ageless God reminiscing. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world began. Sounds like an old man reminiscing, right? No, it's like an ageless God reminiscing. Number seven, he accepted attribution of deity to himself. He accepted attribution of deity to himself. Now, in the Jewish scheme of things, once again, it would have been a blasphemy, right? John chapter 20, verses 26 through 29. Eight days later, Thomas was with them. This is after the resurrection. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. You know, Thomas is a monotheistic Jew, a pious Jew, to be sure. Some, somebody who was being raised in the context of Second Temple Judaism. Every morning and evening, he would recite, Yahweh is God and Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery and bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. A monotheistic Jew who would recite and affirm the uniqueness of Yahweh is looking at a man standing in front of him and saying, my Lord and my God. Now, if that doesn't startle us, nothing else will. And if there was any time in the life of Jesus when he could have corrected any misconceptions about him, this is the moment. He could have said, are you calling me Yahweh? Are you making me equal with Yahweh? Thomas, don't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. He accepted attribution of deity to himself. The next one, he juxtaposed his words with the Old Testament scriptures. He juxtaposed his words with the Old Testament scriptures. It means he put his words on an equal authority with the words of the Old Testament. Time and again, if you look at Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. Here is Jesus placing his word, his authoritative word, on a par with the Old Testament scriptures, which is the word of Yahweh. Now, you might argue that a prophet in the Old Testament also spoke the words of Yahweh. Yes, every prophet, every true prophet spoke the inherent word of Yahweh. But do you know, and I know you remember, that they always began with the phrase, thus says the Lord. Because it's God's word, not my own word. But here, Jesus is claiming to have the power to give authoritative word that is on a par with the word of Yahweh as given to them in the Old Testament scriptures. He juxtaposed his word with the word of the Old Testament. Number nine, he claimed power over life and death. He claimed power over life and death. You know, in the Old Testament, in the song of Hannah, Hannah sings praises to God and credits God with the power to kill and to be able to give life. To kill and to be able to give life. It is God who has the power to kill. It is a God who has the power to restore people to life. In Psalm 119, the psalmist acknowledged about a dozen times that Yahweh is the one who gives and preserves life. I think perhaps the most emphatic of statements is made to Martha in John chapter 11. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Lastly, and tenthly, he claimed equality with the father. He claimed equality with the father. I want to spend a couple of minutes on this because we need to understand the context of what Jesus is saying. Now listen to me very carefully, please. Matthew 26, this is also given to us in all of the synoptic gospels. Matthew 26 verses 63 through 65. This is called the Jewish examination of Jesus. The next day, Jesus would go to the cross, but he is going to be examined by the Jewish high priest. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, or I put you under oath by the living God is what he means. Tell us if you're the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then, understanding the claim, the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. 
Now, there's a very, very significant moment in the life of Jesus. This is the Jewish examination of Jesus. He would go to the cross the next day. And as he was standing before the high priest, Jesus is asked the question, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the son of the living God? Jesus, in his answer, listen, please. Jesus, in his answer, pulls together two statements from the Old Testament. He is pulling together Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he's also pulling from Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14, where you see a figure like a son of man who approaches the ancient of days, who is God himself. And all dominion and power and glory and majesty and kingdom and worship is given to this figure of son of man. And he writes on the clouds of heaven. Jesus, in his answer to the high priest, is pulling from these two verses. First of all, there is this figure in Psalm 110 verse 1 that Psalm 110 verse 1 talks about, where this particular figure called the Lord is given the throne of Yahweh himself. He is made to sit at the right hand of God, sharing the very authority of God and the very throne of God. And then you have the Son of Man figure in Daniel chapter 7, who is given all authority and dominion and power and worship. And Jesus here is saying this to the high priest. Now listen, please. He's saying, you may be the judge right now. And you have been given the power for the moment to judge me. And you will put me to death very soon, because in a moment, you're going to take me to Pilate, and he will put me to be crucified. For the moment, you're the judge, and I'm standing in front of you, and you think I'm a criminal. But there is going to be a time in the future when you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. Daniel chapter 7. Until that moment, dear high priest, if you want to know where I'll be, I will be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high sharing the very throne of Yahweh, sharing the very authority of Yahweh and the very power of Yahweh. In other words, since we have an IT crowd here, let me say this in modern day terms. If you want to find out where Jesus is and contact him, you can email him at jesusthemessiah at the righthandofgod.com. That's where he is. That's where he is seated until he comes back riding on the clouds in judgment. And he's saying, when I come back on the clouds, you will stand before me and I will stand as the judge of all the world. Until then, I will be seated at the right hand of God, sharing the very authority of Yahweh himself. The high priest understood in his culture what Jesus meant. He tore his robes and he said, what more evidence do we want? This is blasphemy. Why? Because he, a mere creature, a man is identifying himself within the identity of Yahweh, who alone is a sole creator and the sole ruler of all things. He made himself equal with Yahweh. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, you know, propagated an argument called the trilemma. He said, regarding the identity of Jesus, he said, Jesus could either be a liar or a lunatic for making claims like that, or the Lord of the universe. He called him the devil of hell, the Lord of the universe. But the New Testament does not give us so many, uh, so many options. The New Testament gives us only two options here. Number one, 
he is either a blasphemer, in which case the high priest is right, or he's exactly who he claims. The Lord God of the universe. Who decides who is right here? And what decides who's right? He's put on a cross, he dies, and when the tomb goes empty on the third day, God will not raise a blasph blasphemer, will he? No. The resurrection of Jesus is God's vindication about the claims of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is God's vindication about the claims and the person of Jesus. Which means God has raised him up and he's exalted him to his right hand. So he claimed equality with the Father. Now, to be sure, anybody can make these claims, isn't it? Anybody can make these claims. So did Jesus merely make claims? The answer the Gospels give is a resounding no. Because he supported his claims, he backed up his claims or by his miracles. Look at two of the verses that I want to mention from John. John chapter 5, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The very works, the miracles, and other things that Jesus was doing are the works that the Father gave him and bear witness to the fact that it's the Father who sent him. John 10 verse 38. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Now, whenever Jesus was given a chance to confess who he is, Jesus always pointed to his miracles as his witnesses and the explanation of his claims. Now, what is impressive about the scope of the works of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus, they involve the healing of the blind, and you don't see the healing of the blind in the Old Testament at all. You see the cleansing of lepers and the power to raise people from the dead. The scope of all of these together is something that no Old Testament prophet or anybody in history has accomplished. In other words, the two verses that we read from John say that the works of Jesus represent the works of the Father, authenticating the claims and the person of Jesus. So all that Jesus does is nothing more and nothing less than, the, than what the Father gives him to do. All that Jesus does is nothing more or nothing less than what the Father gives him to do. The works that he does are therefore peculiarly divine. So Jesus did things that only God could do. Jesus did things that only God could do. Very quickly, how do the New Testament writers understand this? How do the New Testament writers understand this? Identify Jesus directly by identifying himself with Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. They identified Jesus by identifying himself, by including himself within the identity of Yahweh. Now, Jewish monotheism, like we studied, clearly distinguished Yahweh from the rest of reality. But the ways in which it distinguished the one true God from the rest of reality, it did not stop the early Christians from including Jesus within the identity of Yahweh. In fact, they did it in ways 
where it clearly explained what Jewish monotheism is and never rejected what Jewish monotheism is and the unique concept of God they had in the Jewish setting. So how do the New Testament writers do it? How do the New Testament writers uh, present Jesus as God? They do it in four ways very quickly. Number one, they attribute the names of God to Jesus. They attribute the theos in Greek, which means God, they apply it to Jesus. And the word kurios, which means Lord, they apply it to Jesus. And several other things, we don't have time for that. Number one, they attribute the names of God to Jesus. Number two, they attribute the works of God to Jesus. For example, creation. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the creator of all things. Number two, providence. He's a sustainer of everything and he's the one who provides things as well, etc., etc. So number one, they attribute the names of God to Jesus. They attribute the works of God to Jesus. Number three, they attribute the characteristics of God to Jesus or the attributes of God to Jesus, omniscience, omnipresence, immortality, etc., etc. And finally, can you guess that? They attribute the worship of God to Jesus. They attribute the worship of God to Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11, God has exalted him to the highest place and has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If I have to popularly translate the Greek phrase there, God has super exalted him. There is no exaltation greater than where Jesus is seated right now. The other New Testament passages say he's seated at the right hand of God, which means he's sharing the very throne of God, the very authority of God, and the very power of God. There is no exaltation greater than the exaltation given to Jesus. In other words, again, because there's an IT crowd here, he's the CEO of the entire universe. Nothing and absolutely nothing in this universe runs without his signature on it. God has exalted him to the highest place. So four ways in which the New Testament writers include Jesus within the identity of Yahweh. Number one, they attribute the names of God to Jesus. They attribute the works of God to Jesus. They attribute the characteristics of God to Jesus. And they attribute the worship of God to Jesus. Very quickly, how do we apply this to our own lives? Number one, have the right understanding of who Jesus is. I'll take five more minutes, so just bear with me, please. I only started at 10, 15. I've not even spoken for 50 minutes. Uh, have the right understanding of who Jesus is. In the early church, there was a heresy called Arianism, which was propagated by a man by the name of Arius of Alexandria. He went on to say that Jesus is a created being, granted the highest of all created beings, but he was not equal to Yahweh. He was not eternal. He didn't have the attributes of Yahweh. In other words, he was not God in the flesh. And this heresy was repudiated by the Council of Nicaea in about 325 AD. The modern day version of Arianism is, guess who? Jehovah's Witnesses. They come. Do you have 10 minutes, sir? Let's talk about who the person is. Please come home. Let's talk about it. Let's have the right understanding of who Jesus is. 
Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you a question very sincerely. Where do you place Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? Is he the highest of all creation? Or do you include him in the very identity of Yahweh, the sole creator and ruler of all things, who alone is worthy of worship? My dear brothers and sisters, and those of you who don't know him personally listening to me, all of, search for, all of your search for God ends with your coming to Jesus. All of your pilgrimages, all of your quest and your search for God ends with your coming to Jesus. Because when you're looking into the eyes of Jesus, you're looking into the very eyes of God himself. Jesus is God in the flesh. Spend a couple of minutes in the scripture portion for us that was read for us by Starlet. Uh, Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. In that, we saw uh, the episode of the miraculous catch of called as the, the episode of the call of the first disciples. That's where the first disciples received their commission from the Lord, isn't it? Now, before we get there to Luke chapter 5, I want to give you a little background about Luke. Just takes 30 seconds. Listen, please. One of the major themes of Luke is something called God's visitation. God has visited us. For example, Zechariah, right after the birth of John the Baptist, he says this. Zechariah says that, uh, blessed be the God, Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people. So you see the theme of God's visitation often in the Gospel of Luke. Now with that understanding, let's come to chapter 5. Here Jesus performs the miraculous catch of fish. And immediately... Peter looks at Jesus and he says, go away from me, Lord. I am a, I am a sinful man. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Now think of this parallelly with what happened in Isaiah chapter 6, the vision of Isaiah. There you have the greatness and the majesty of Lord seen by Isaiah. And there you have a confession of sinfulness. You have the reassurance given from the Lord and the commission given to Isaiah. And here, in Luke chapter 5, you see the majesty of Jesus. That's the theme of Luke chapter 5, the greatness of Jesus, and a confession by Peter, a reassurance given by the Lord, and a commission given by Lord to Peter, I'll make you fishers of men. What Isaiah saw in heavenly glory there, Peter is seeing on, in live colors on the Sea of Galilee. God has visited us. He has visited us in the person of his son. This is God's visitation. Have the right understanding of who Jesus is. Secondly, God has reached out to us for our redemption. God has reached out to us for our redemption. My dear brothers and sisters, because of Jesus, redemption is available to us. Because of Jesus, redemption is available to us. In Luke's story that we just talked about, Simon Peter fell on his knees and he said, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. But the same Jesus is willing to accept us as we are and transform us into the people that he wants us to be. In Jesus, all of us, everybody listening this morning, we have hope. Everybody has hope in Jesus. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, a propitiation for our sins. Lastly, Take the worship of Christ seriously. Once we understand who Jesus is, 
Our attitude should change. Our mindset about him should change. Can I ask you a question as sincerely as I ask myself the same thing? How was your attitude this morning when you worship Jesus? Casual? Careless? Worried about everything else in the world? My dear brothers and sisters, let me remind you and remind myself, we are coming into the presence of the sole creator and the sole ruler of the entire universe who alone is worthy of worship. In the words of Paul, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Father God, with Peter, as we in your word behold your majesty and your greatness, we say with him, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinner. But we want to thank you, Lord, that it is for our redemption that you've come into this world to accept us as we are and redeem us and adopt us to become the sons of the Most High God. And thank you, Lord, in Jesus, we have a God who's visited us. In Jesus, we understand who God is and we learn more about God and all our search for God ends with our coming to Jesus. Thank you for this understanding from scriptures that you've given us. And thank you for the claims that you made, O Lord. And we reaffirm our faith this morning that Jesus is God in the human flesh. He ought to be identified within the ident identity of Yahweh, who is the sole creator and the sole ruler of the universe. And you alone are worthy of worship, O Lord. We worship you this morning. We want to thank you, O Lord. And as we look at the applications, help us always to maintain this right understanding of Jesus and help us to remember that a redemption is only through you and through you alone and help us to take the worship of Christ seriously. We also pray for the second meeting this morning. We pray that uh, your hand of blessing and favor will be upon it always. In Jesus' name.